Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, we're going to start this evening with a discussion of uh, a question I've been asked regarding uh, the development of karma and the distinctive features of karma, aparabdha, kuta, bija, and parabdha karmas. Um, so I wanted to answer the question as thoroughly as I could. We'll begin by referring to a verse by Srila Rupa Goswami from the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, um, the first wave, the very first part. Translation, also in the Padma Purana, it is said, For those engaged in bhakti to Vishnu, step by step, the Aparabdha, Kuta, Bija, and Parabdha karmas are destroyed. So, <clears throat> Jiva Goswami's commentary to, Vish, to Rupa Goswami's verse is as follows. This additional question from the Padma Purana makes clear, quotation, I'm sorry, from the Padma Purana makes clear the fact that bhakti destroys parabdha karma. The word papam is the substantive, which is modified by words aparabdha phalam. Uh, kutam bijam and falon mukam. This verse particularizes sinful reactions. I'll just read a little bit more. The sinful reactions presently being experienced in this life as happiness and suffering. Bija means that reaction which is about to become parabdha, about to be experienced, as in the form of impressions. Kuta refers to sinful reactions which are about to become bija, aparabdha phalam means those reactions which are not parabdha. They are not to be experienced in this life at all, but which cause effects in the form of kuta, bija, and parabdha. These aparabdha karmas have been acquired without beginning, anadi siddha, and are infinite in number, ananta. In this work, Aparabdha Phalam thus, has thus been called simply Aparabdha, illustrated in verse 20. Bija and Parabdha were reckoned together previously in verse 21. The remaining type not yet discussed, Kuta reaction, may be included with the Aparabdha reactions. So what I found interesting is a, is a footnote to this uh, verse, which kind of puts them into uh, a way that we can kind of absorb the gradual development. Uh, the footnote's as follows. Thus, the experience in this body of suffering at the moment is called parabdha, and the upcoming suffer suffering in this lifetime due to karma is called bija. So these two are referring to what's happening to us now. Parabdha is what we're going through now. Parabdha is what we are experiencing as this material body. In other words, this body comes with certain parabdha. We're born in a certain society, in a social context, with certain skill set, you know, uh, you look at the different classes as, as 
uh, outlining the Varnashram system and say, well, your karma has, has precipitated your being born as a Sudra or a Vaishya, Kshatriya, or a Brahman. So all that is Parabdha. And Parabdha is what we directly experience. Up to the point in this lifetime that it's experienced, it's referred to as Bija. It's about to come. We call that, it's in the stars. You're destined. You'd go to an astrologer and he'd say, well, your first child probably won't make it or your first business will fail or he looks to the stars and say, it's just not in the stars this time. You're not going to be a wealthy man. So this would be Bija. It's like it's going to happen and it's going to happen soon and you're going to experience it soon. Now, what's kind of fermenting for your next life, that's kuta. Kuta. So it's like bija that, that's going to come about in your next, next birth. Mm. So the bija is still this birth. Bija is this birth, right, according to this footnote and from, according to everything else that I've read. Um, so bijas, it's just like destiny. Yeah, but the kuta is also destiny. But it is, not but nearly it's going to manifest. It's, it's going to manifest next uh, time around. But you've already created that karma for it. It'll be your parabda next time. It will become your bija next time and your parabda. Right. Yes. It's pretty much set already. Yes. Let's read this. Thus, the experience in this body of suffering at the moment is called parabda, and the upcoming suffering in this lifetime due to karma, is called bija. It may be detectable on the mental level as a premonition before it happens. Or, as I said, you can go to an astrologer and he can give you the premonition if you haven't got it yourself. <laughs> he may be good or he may be bad and you may buy it into what he says. And you know, I know devotees that have conducted their whole devotional life based on what an astrologer said. That's not a very good course of action for somebody that wants to end their entanglement in material life is making a determination how to conduct their spiritual life based on, you know, the influence of, of, of karma coming forward because you've entered into bhakti. The whole verse from the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu is saying the significance of bhakti is it can destroy all karma, including parabdha karma, which is pretty. It's a pretty strong statement. Now that takes a pretty strong amount of devotion, though. Like it's hard to step out of the fact that you're born as a Muslim, let's say, in Indian society, because that would be like the big, the big no-no. You know, you're untouchable. You know, as far as us, we're all sudras or less, so. <laughs> I, I think, you know, it's like it's like a given, you know, you're not allowed in certain temples in India. Uh, so, um, and then it said, if one were able to intuit circumstances of the next life, if you could see ahead into your next life, that would be kuta. In other words, 
This is down the pike. This is coming to me next time around. The undetectable karmas waiting for future lives would be called aparabdha. So they're like the stockpile that's that's there, you know, it's like the big reservoir of reactions to your activities in the material world. You couldn't even, I mean, if they were all come to you in one lifetime, it would be overwhelming. And you would use the word anadi at the beginning when you were referring to aparabdha. Yes. Right. It's... All-encompassing, yes. All-encompassing. What, what refers to the karma that we're creating right now? Parabda. That we're creating. Oh, That's just karma. And it goes into the pool. Oh, it just goes into the pool. It goes into the pool. Now, sometimes we have, I mean, uh, as we know, it's nothing's happening by chance. And, you know, the demigods are... are uh, you know they're they're they can do whatever they want. They're they are an administrative position. So we have things like instant karma, you know, and I mean for us to try to figure out, there's also also what do we call uh, what's that a death that doesn't come naturally, uh, unnatural death, untimely death. Like untimely death, like you're walking down the street and the bus driver and all of a sudden you're hit by the bus. Now, was that in your cards or did that just happen by chance? It could have happened by chance. It could have been in your cards. Does anything happen by chance? Well, we do say untimely death. So maybe things do happen by chance, but it does I think we have to look at the overall picture. Everything plays out on a, on a on a pretty structured karmic scale. But that isn't to mean there aren't exceptions to the rules, as if there's as there's exceptions to all rules in material life. But what's the effect upon us overall? We've been here since time immemorial, a naughty. We can't trace out the beginning. We can't trace out how much karma is sitting there that we haven't experienced. But now, the cumulative effect of our karma has at least given us a human form of life. So the bad karma and the good karma has brought us to a stage. Now, one thing that's mentioned in Madhurya Kadambani in both the editions I, I read a couple times in relationship to this is the fact that the human form of life is really where we accumulate karma for the future. The demigods, it plays out like they want something. They're controllers. They have mystic powers, most of them. They they're very advanced, so when they want something, they just have it. And the animals, when they want something, their experience is, is more or less, you know, it happens right away. They don't, we're the only people that want something, and we don't get it. So that really plays into to the fact of the, the human experience is one of, we want more than we can get, you know. 
what can you say? Can you figure it all out? It's like a banyan tree. The, you know, the, the roots are gone everywhere, which, you know, can we really map out karma? Well, to some extent, Shastra says we can because there's the karma kanda sections of the Vedas. Do this, do that. This will get you the good wife. This will get you the good job. This will get you the son or the daughter. This will get you the promotion to the heavenly planets. You know, so if you can stay within the guidelines of scripture, then there's the karmic part of scripture that you can write your life according to. Now, you may not experience that in this life, but scripture is there. It's a road map which, by which you can plot out your future experiences within the material world. What's the difference? High, low, wet stool, dry stool, as the sages say. It sounds kind of, oh, what kind, what's a, how, why would you talk about life like that? Well, because it really doesn't matter if you're on the heavenly planets or the hellish planets. From Krishna's point of view and from the sadhu's point of view, they're all places of misery where repeated birth and death take place. So why put stock in any of it? It's all of no significance. You're not part of it. We're not this material body. I mean, we're, we have nothing to do with this. It only becomes significant to us as much as we buy into the illusion that this is our, our true existence. It's not our true existence. The only part of our existence that's true right now is the truth that is related to our purifying ourselves and associating with Krishna's devotees and the deity and the holy name. That's the only truth that endures. All the other, nothing else that you're involving yourself in is going to endure. It doesn't matter if you go up or down. It doesn't matter if you go left or right. It doesn't matter if you get the job or don't. How are you progressing in spiritual life? That will stay with you. Krishna guarantees that in the Bhagavad Gita. He doesn't guarantee karma in the Bhagavad Gita. But he does, in his scriptures, give you some guidelines. Well, if you really want to go up the karmic ladder, here's go right ahead. Here's, here's a nice way to do it. And hopefully he's saying, he's thinking, scripture is there to say, well, look, you wanted, the, you wanted that son, you followed the prescription, and you got it. Maybe there's more in the book to the book than just getting a son. And that's the whole reason for, you know, the encouragement according to the mentality of different people to engage in those kind of religious, religious acts as opposed to spiritual acts. And the, and the closing point here is that bhakti eliminates. It eliminates everything in the big pool, aparabdha. It eliminates what's coming down in the next life because you're developing bhakti samskaras. And Krishna says, if you don't finish or whatever progress you make, 
I reinforce that progress and it's not never lost. And even if you stumble and fall, you're going to take birth in a family where your bhakti is going to be nurtured more. It may you may be in a rich man's family, it may be in a in a very spiritually oriented family, a Brahminical family, but your devotional practice will continue. That's that's the guarantee that Krishna's giving. But as far as karma, bhakti is so powerful that it can even eliminate parabdha karma up to a point. Up to the point of it's eliminated, you're truly, if you're absorbed in bhakti, qualified by scripture to engage in Brahminical sacrifice the top of the line, you know, sacrifices and everything. Society might not see it that way, but scripture sees it that way. So in the community of Vaishnavs, you're going to be viewed, you know, if it's a truly uncolored community of sadhus, you're going to be viewed without any prejudice according to karmic circumstance up to the point of your accepting Vaishnavism and, and entering into. So they're going to accept you. Society may be a little behind those times. So you may not be allowed in the temple with Jagannath Puri. You may not be allowed to worship the deity if you have a female body, even in a Vaishnav temple in India. What to speak of cook for the deity. Nah, we wouldn't want to talk about that. <laughs> so you get the point. It's a matter of of the discriminative nature of the society of sadhus that you keep. Well, wait. I've been practicing Vaishnavism now for 20 or 30 years, and, you know, I just... <laughs> Stubbed my toe the other day and it hurt like hell. What's going on with that? Scripture explains that in the following way. Scripture says your karma is immediately eliminated. There's a couple factors that may lead to your not directly experiencing that. One way be, and this is there, is Krishna treats his devotees and society in general in such a way that he reinforces whatever faith people have. And guess what? Atheists have a certain amount of faith. They have faith in atheism. So you may appear to die like everybody else. Krishna himself, when he came, appeared to die like everybody else. The Yadus died. They beat each other to death or whatever. (laughs) So for the for the common man, they, they were seen as just common people. Krishna was seen as a common person. That's not really what happened. Scripture tells us what really happened. But that's one circumstance. The other circumstance is Krishna, you're on you by becoming a devotee have now bought into Krishna's program. Krishna may have a may have 
a certain way that he wants to deal with you, and he deals with every devotee differently, and and he may put you in a circumstance, and he says it. If I really like a devotee, I just take everything away. You know, I take all their money away. You know, I just I did I destroy their material life if I'm if they're you know. So. Or he may make you a rich man. He's free to do. He knows best how to deal with every one of his devotees. So sometimes he takes it all away. Sometimes he gives it all. Whatever. That's his choice. But that's not karma. That's not, that doesn't fall. And the other thing is, although the karma is eliminated immediately, it's spoken of, and particularly it's spoken of here in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, as it's like putting a needle through a thousand lotus petals. You go like this, it seems instantaneous for us to do it, but it's going through. All the karma is being eliminated, but it's still going through one, then the other, then the other, then the other. So from the from the bhakti viewpoint, it's done. So the karma is immediately eliminated. From our viewpoint, well, just look at Brahma's day and look at our day. You know, Brahma looked away for a moment, and it was a year here, uh, you know, for Krishna and his associates who were engaging in Lila on the earthly plane. So these four categories are there just to kind of get an over, an over, you know, just a simple idea of what they involve. Aparabdha, it's everything together, both good and bad. It's the the soup that makes up your future existence and material life. We are not interested in it, you know. Uh, kuta, Kuta's waiting for you next time. You're contributing to what, if you were engaged in karmic activity here with a purpose, then that would be helping to, to develop the impressions that would result in your next birth. Let's say that you've, you know, you may not have the, the, the circumstance now, the bija, which is more like impressions that you can work with right now in this life of karma. So you can go up to that point. So let's say you want in this life, somehow the desire develops in you to, to, to master uh, some, become a, a great singer or a great musician or a great businessman or whatever. But karma is just, it's just not there. You haven't got the brain for it, but you really, really, really want it and you start working towards it. So that would be like kuta. You know, it's pulling out of the pool what's going to formulate your next life. And you do have some involvement in that. Or you can adhere to scripture and, and follow the karma conda sections. And, and that's going to pull out those, imp- you know, that's going to make an impression that's going to stick into your next birth and result in a higher birth. Like that. 
and what we're experiencing now. So then we come back to the point, well, how does bhakti, well, we've mentioned that, how does bhakti eliminate parabdha karma? That seems like a pretty, pretty tall task. But really, you look at the sadhus that are extremely advanced, they, 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 can, they just walk away from society. They really do. They, they're completely aloof. And for us, we may still have, you know, the ropes may be binding us and we're, we're working as, as best we can to cut them. So there still may be residue karma. But Is that like the Prabhupada's example of pulling the plug from the wall of the fan, but the blades are still... Yeah, he speaks of it that way. That would be something like it's the needles going through some of the leaves, whatever example we want to use. Vishwanath speaks very liberally in regards to uh, bhakti. Other acharyas may not speak so liberally. Vishwanath says, as soon as you, as soon as you come into the, as soon as that intent is there on your part to become a devotee, karma's done, finished. Other devotees may say, well, no, you're still, getting, still spinning or whatever. What's the difference? We just work according to our capacity and we make advancement. We're not here to argue one, one sadhu against another. They all have a different viewpoint. But I think the important thing is, and what I notice in the Vaishnav community, which I think is, is not beneficial to, to firm spiritual advancement, is a sense that you have to individually work on all the qualities of a devotee. No, you have to work on being a devotee. The qualities follow behind. I don't have to work on being humble. I have to work. That doesn't mean I'm not humble. I have to be humble in a society of Vaishnavs. But everything's in relation to my spiritual advancement. I'm not working to be truthful or humble. I'm not working on this character flaw or that character flaw. I'm working on being Krishna's devotees. The character flaws are there. They can come and go. But if I concentrate on my flaws, I'm never going to get anywhere. I'm just spinning my wheels. You know, I have to go to therapy. I need to get a, a, a consultation and all this. I need to go see my astrologer. I can't get through the, this year because I can't chant my rounds because the stars are in the wrong place. No. You work. You listen to the guru. You would... You invest your energy in making spiritual advancement according to the to the processes of bhakti. Shravanam kirtanam vishnu smaranam padasavanam archanam vandanam dasyam sakyam atvidedanam. We put our energy in the main angas of bhakti. We don't put our energy into our shortcomings. You'll never overcome your shortcomings if you take that route. There will always be some other shortcoming that's going to come up. <laughs> so, good luck with that. No, we concentrate on bhakti. We concentrate on Krishna. He'll clean up. Shaito Darpa Namarjanam. He'll work. He'll take care of all that in the heart. That's, he's the sweeper. We just have to let him do his job. You know, get the corporate America out of our heart. Mm-hmm. You know, let him let him do his simple thing. That means the desires. 
if our primary desire is to advance in bhakti, everything else will follow. If our primary desire is to be the most humble or the most this or that, that's that's not what bhakti is about. Those things are natural qualities that develop through bhakti, not that they're something that's cultivated independently of bhakti. You had something to add? Um, well, I was thinking earlier while you were speaking that, you know, well, which is it do, does the karma, do we get rid of, you know, does Krishna get rid of the karma? And I was thinking, well, it seems like it's more like a devotee transcends it as opposed to, like, getting rid of it. And that kind of goes with what you were saying. It's like we just transcend all of that stuff by develop, by practicing the devotional service. Like, you can't change that you were born a certain parents. Like, you can't like go back in time and erase that fact, but the effect of that is inconsequential if you're to the extent that you're right because it's not going to change. But you're rising above it, so it could stay there, but it's not it doesn't have any effect. So, like you're saying, if we focus on all the lower stuff, you're never it's we have that unlimited bag. But if you rise above that and those cords are cut then it just doesn't have any significance hmm. yes. does that answer your question Thank you very much, we're covered okay. so we're going to continue at this point with our discussion of the Paramatma Sandarbha we're in the 58th Anucheta we're dealing with the proper conception of the Lord's the proper conception of maya, the external energy. And in this 58th Anucheta, we're dealing specifically with uh, the proper conception that actually maya is a true existing reality, which is a manifestation of the Lord's energy. And it's, well, it is one of his shaktis. Well, it's a shakti of one of his expansions. So, and specifically, it's not an illusion. So we're going to continue with uh, some um, perspective that's brought up in the commentary here, which will uh, kind of defeat this idea of vivarta, that it's, uh, it's an illusion. And it's done in an interesting way. So, as summarized in the previous Anucheta, the Advaitavad doctrine holds that the world is not real but an illusory appearance, vivarta of Brahman. It's not, that's their conclusion. It's just illusion. The popular example is that of mistaking a rope for a snake in semi-darkness. The Advaitavadi proposes that the snake is neither real nor unreal. It is not real because when light, light is thrown on it, one sees the rope and not a snake. It is also not completely unreal, like the horn of a hare, because one actually does perceive a snake and becomes fearful and may even jump back. 
So just the distinctions being made with the Advaita Vod, they really put stock in the fact that um, the material world is is simply an illusory representation of Brahman, an illusory representation of Brahman. So this commentary is going to deal with, well, let's just let's talk about that for a minute and how. Uh, what the ramifications of that kind of a statement are. So the, the snake is called the vivarta, the illusion, or the illusory appearance of the rope. It is also called an ajaropa, or the superimposition of a mental pattern, riti, or a mental trance, I'm sorry, mental trace, samskara of a prior perception of a snake onto the indistinct perception of the rope. So for a, for the illusion to work, you can't have full use of your sensory perception. In other words, you can't, for some reason or another, you don't have either due to your defective sense or the defective environment you can't distinguish what the rope what that a rope is really there so therefore the mind fills in the blanks like you were speaking you said that you know you'd heard that you could only see this far and everything else is just built upon mental impressions of what you've experienced beforehand, that really you're not seeing everything in the room. You can only see what's directly, in front. but you are, you've made a whole room up based on your experiences, either your perceptions at other times or whatever. And that's to some extent the reality of our sensual perception. And as we close with last class, sometimes that perception is way off. Like, what kind of car was it that hit the little puppy dog? No, it wasn't a gray van. It was a purple truck. <laughs> you know, it's... And believe me, that's what they thought they saw. It's not that they were like, well, let me make up a color. You know, no, that's what I saw. So I saw that color, and it was a truck, not a van. Okay. All right, but somebody that has factual knowledge that you know can say okay. And as we say in a court of law, everybody who's testifying, unless they have an ulterior ulterior motive, is generally hand on the Bible, giving a true account according to their. And believe me, in a court of law. Everybody's got a different opinion. You try, you try to pick a jury based on what their preconceived notions are. Bhakti Ross was just telling me about, you know, her experience. She was called for jury duty, and it's funny because she pointed out to me, and it, it you think about it, they go through a period in picking a jury where they want to know what your biases are. They want to pick you 
based on your answers to their questions that let them know either as as the prosecutor or the defending attorney, they want to know, well, this piece, this person will deal with the, with the, with the information that they're given in a, in a very, in the, in a prejudicial way that's for or against my winning or losing the case. But throughout the whole procedure, the first thing the judge says when you come in the door and sit down is throw your prejudices away. So it's like on one hand, they're, they're bringing you into the court of law and saying, you cannot be, you cannot be prejudiced. You cannot talk to each other because you may become prejudiced based on what somebody will say. You can't watch the news at night. All these things to stop you from having a prejudice. And then the first questions out of the mouths of the attorneys are, what do you feel about policemen? Can they be truthful? Do you think that a breathalyzer actually works all the time? Do you think, you know, <laughs> think about it. And then the attorneys are making, okay, you, you're okay. You can, you can be on the jury because you'll th- see things my way based on your prejudices. But the whole thing is you can't be prejudiced as a, as, as a juror. What a system. Vivarta is, is somewhat like that. We have, we, we construct an illusion. So we're talking about a system of a dwaitant philosophy, spiritual philosophy, wherein the aspiring transcendentalist looks upon the world as an illusory representation of Brahman. In this commentary, what Jiva's saying is, wait a minute. And he says a couple interesting things here. According to Advaita Vod, anything visible or perceivable by the senses is not ultimately real. Nothing. Nothing's real. Ultimate reality is self-luminous and beyond the scope of the senses. We'll accept that. Nothing wrong with that. Brahman, the Supreme, is beyond the scope of the senses. By the example of mistaking a rope for a snake, the Advaita Vadis try to prove that the world is not real, but a Vivarta of Brahman. It is actually Brahman, but appears as the world out of the ignorance of the perceiver. As we said, two things. Either the, there's, the senses are faulty or the, the environment is such that we can't perceive what is. So they're saying, the Dwaytans are saying that the world appears to be real because of you're, just, you're dumb. <laughs> so you're accepting the world as a reality. Jiva Goswami refutes this statement. Now, also, these statements are there. It's not that they're not supported scripturally if you take a certain interpretation. Sarvam klavidam brahman. All this perceivable world is indeed brahman. Well, that's there. Okay. Neha nanasti kinchina. There is no variety whatsoever here. 
in the world. Looking at it, you know, the, you can interpret this verse in, the, in that way, or you can interpret from the bhakti perspective. Shijiva Goswami refutes this argument by stating that an, an imaginary object cannot be superimposed. For superimposition to be possible, one must have a subconscious impression, samskara, of a previously experienced factually existing object. What factually existing object from the could be imposed on Brahman, where would that impression come from? Is what Jeeva is basically saying. In order for you to have an impression to, to, to falsely project onto Brahman so that you accept Brahman so that you accept the material world as an illusory representation of Brahman where did it come from? That's Jiva's basic question where where did it come from? If you want to have an impression you had to have a samskara from something you experienced if you didn't have an experience where did it come from? Brahman couldn't give it to you because what? What's their conception of Brahman? There's no qualities. There's there's no differentiation there. It's the undifferentiated spiritual whole. It's the supreme Brahman. So where did where did this impression come from of the world? I mean. Wow, just take it through, think on it, meditate on it. What the Advaitins are saying, that you made the whole place up. Not only did you make the whole place up, but your conceptions and your projections are so super fantastic, mystical, that you can have other people in them that buy in to that conception along with you. Then you're all experiencing it together. So either I'm talking to you or I've made you all up. I'm simply here (laughs) talking to myself in a dream world that I've conceived of. Just play out the Advaitin philosophy to the full degree of what they're actually saying. Sri Jiva explains the process of Adyaropa by the example of a mirage in the desert. Unless one has experienced real water, one cannot have an illusion of water in a mirage. And it would be it would not be possible to superimpose it onto Brahman. Then he he talks about the something that Bhakti Ross touched upon, infinite regress. This leads to the defect of mutual dependency or infinite regress. 
this had to come from that had to come from that so you had to there has to be a starting place um, according to the advaitavad the word is world is an outcome of ajaropa but the world itself is also the cause or source of the ajaropa to have ajaropa one must have an experience of an object a purvadrista in the words of sankara but to have that experience there must already be an existing object which would be the outcome of an un- another ajaropa so for the advaitin vad philosophy to work it's an it's an infinite regress you have to come back to a starting point where that first impression comes about because that first impression can't be brahman which is qualityless i mean where's it you know where's it come from where do they say it comes from or they don't they don't say they don't talk about it <laughs> yeah that's they quote a verse from scripture and say sarvam klavidam brahman it's all brahman we agree it's all brahman but brahman has qualities and brahman it brahman has shaktis and brahman can can even transform mystically part of his potencies into a material manifestation and still remain completely independent of him that's his unlimited limited energies we accept that brahman is truly not changeable unless brahman wants to change himself that's where the mayavad the advaitvad all this falls apart they don't give god credit for being able to do whatever he wants he can do unlimitedly what he wants he can do the inconceivable he can he can take part of his potency and be it's still he could be the cause of a potency that appears to be entirely distinct from his very self it's not distinct from himself we don't accept the world as false we accept it as a real energy of the supreme but it's not conscious and god's conscious well god is so conscious that he can create an unconscious manifestation of his real self well then how can he be god no that's the reason he is god because he can do that that's our viewpoint so basically he concludes in the commentary here brahman however is said to have no attributes general or specific it thus cannot be the basis for any superimposition no matter how far you regress back you get to brahman brahman has to be the original that that you're that you that has been the original source of your impression that created the illusion well if brahman's the original source and you're living in your illusory world then wh- he can't be the source of that of that impression because he has no specific attributes or qualities that's our ideal of 
of Brahman. Brahman is beyond all perception, therefore it is not possible to mistake it for something else, such as the universe. So we'll begin in the next discussion. Jiva's covering the same point. This is the four, next class will be on the fourth uh, subdivision of this one Anucheta. It's entitled uh, Parinam. Parinam means a modification. So the world is a modification. It's a modifiable potency of the of the supreme. Not Vivard is the real import of Shastra. So now he's going to finish up in the next discussion with when you're really when you find in Scripture discussions of how the material world is manifest, you'll always find the explanation of uh, Parinama. And where you find Vivarta, it's only to facilitate a sense of detachment. Yes, it's an illusion. It's an illusion compared to the spiritual reality. So everything we accept, the world's an illusory place. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's a it's a it's an illusion that exists. Well, and the more we buy into it, the more we exist in the world. But that doesn't mean we can't exist in the world and not buy into it. And that's the ultimate objective. And that objective begins up to the point of a Sukadev without any without the input of spiritual knowledge that's descending from the transcendental realm. We can come up to the position of a of a of a Jivan Mukta and be detached from the world. Then with some <coughs> some descending knowledge can go further. Thank you very much for your association.